morning. Um, this week we are starting a, a new sermon series uh, as we enter this season of Advent. Um, we're going to be talking about encountering Emmanuel. Um, Advent for for most of us, uh, well, I say most of us, a lot of us didn't grow up in, in churches that celebrated Advent, you know, so I kind of like to give this little introduction to Advent for, for those of us who didn't grow up in churches that celebrate Advent, uh, but and also to remind us what exactly we are celebrating in this Advent season. Um, Advent is this time right before Christmas, it's the four Sundays before Christmas that we kind of get an opportunity to more formally gather together as the body of Christ. When we say body of Christ, we mean not just locally here at Harrisburg, but globally around the world. Christians all around the world celebrate Advent. Um, it, it's, a, it's a celebration that's both ancient in the fact that early Christians have done it, um, future Christians will do it, and we now do it. So it's both ancient and, and modern. I also love that it's communal. Uh, this is something that unites us together as one. This is something that kind of takes all of our focus and, and focuses on this truth of this season. And in that community aspect, we're, we're then unified as the body of Christ. So what are we doing in this season? We are, we're entering with a season of, of waiting, of expectation, of celebrating Christ's birth into the world. This is what we mean by Emmanuel. The, the Old Testament teaches us that to call Christ Emmanuel is to say God is with us, right? Some writers have, have pointed out that in this season of Advent, we celebrate heaven coming to earth. Uh, uh, C.S. Lewis, or not C.S. Lewis, Rich Mullins, who's one of my favorite singers, talks about how he who lived in radiance, right, now takes on skin. He who's from eternity now enters into time. Eugene Peterson is another one who says that, that, that flesh and blood right, now enters into our neighborhood. So this idea of radiance taking on skin, eternity, exact time, is the idea that God has chosen to be with us. Now, if we break down the word Advent itself from the Latin, it means coming or arrival. So our, our tendency when we think about Advent is to just think about the birth of Jesus, right? To think about the fact that God is coming to earth in the form of a baby, However, the Greeks, when they understood Advent, their word that they used for it was parousia. And, and parousia distinctly talks about the return of the king, right? You can't return unless you've come before, right? You can only return because you're coming back, right? So, so the parousia and their Advent thinking was, yeah, yeah, Christ has come, but we look forward to the day of Christ's coming. And somewhere after the New Testament and before we get to modern day, around the 11th to 12th century, Bernard of Clairvaux, who is this great priest and scholar, he, he kind of surveyed the land and he surveyed the theology. And he says, no, 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 if we want to really get this Advent thing right, we have to understand it three ways, right? Advent is Christ with us, Christ coming in flesh, right? Christ coming in our hearts daily through the power of the Holy Spirit and Christ coming in glory, so this is what we mean by Advent, right? Not just to focus on Christ coming as a baby, but a reminder that Christ will come again. And the challenge for us as we live in the now is to accept the fact that Christ desires to come daily in our hearts. So that's our understanding of Advent. Here at HBIC, we celebrate it kind of traditionally. We'll have specials, we'll have lightings, but our, our focus each week will be one of these themes, right? Hope, peace, joy, and love. Now, in the past, when we entered into Advent, we focused on the people of Advent. You know, we heard a little bit about Elizabeth and Zechariah earlier, but we have focused on Simeon and Anna and Mary and Joseph, all in how their encounters or how their interactions with God led them to hope, peace, 
joy, and love. Well, this year, instead of focusing on individual stories, I thought it would be fun to look at groups, right? Because we're a group, right? But I thought it would be fun to look at groups and how they interact with this Advent story. So instead of individuals, we're going to look at the prophets as a whole. We're going to look at angels. We're going to look at the shepherds. We're going to look at the magi. And in their stories, we'll see how the prophets teach us to have hope, how the angels bring us peace, how the shepherds show us joy, and how the magi show us love. Now, the joy of Advent is that we are challenged to remember the past, what God has done, but we're also challenged to consider the future. The hard part about all that, though, is that even though we can only learn from the past and hope for the future, we only live in the now. And that brings us to our encounter with Emmanuel. So part of the challenge for us this, this next four weeks is not to just think of Advent as, oh, Christ comes as a baby, right? Not to just think of Advent as like, well, Christ will come again. But the thing of Advent is Christ comes as a baby, Christ will come again in glory, but Christ wants to come today in me, right? So how then do I encounter Emmanuel? And so the challenge for us this morning and the question I place in front of you is, how does then encountering Emmanuel bring hope to you and your world? Because here it is, sisters and brothers, in between the already of what God has done and the not yet of what God will do is the now. We live in the now. We encounter God in the now. God gives us hope in the now. Our work is how do we take that hope and give it to our world. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Micah chapter 5. I'll be reading the first four verses of Micah chapter 5. We'll also have it up front so you can follow along up there as well. Starting at verse 1. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans, some translations will say, though you are small among the rulers of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time she who is in labor bears a son. And the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Let's pray together. Our Father and God, we thank you so much this morning that we can come before you, that we can celebrate, that we can wait, that we can come in expectation, because you are indeed the God of hope. A God of hope, show us your power. Help us to know that not only are you have all authority, not only is everything under you, but that you not only hold the world together, but you hold us together. God, help us to see your power. Help us to see your work. Help us to see how you are moving in this world. Help us to see how your power inspires and gives hope. And let that hope be something not that we fight to hold on to, but that we live to share. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are a God of hope that we can hold on to the presence of not only God, but that you now live inside of those of us who believe, that with our eyes opened by you, we can see how you're living and moving and working in this world. We can see the things that God is up to. We can see how you knit us together as one, from the saints of the ancient days to the saints of the future, to we who live in the now, you knit us together as one. From saints in Africa to South America to Australia to North America, you knit us together as one. And God, we thank you that you are indeed the God of hope, who promises not just to show us power, not just to gift us presence, but to also protect us. Lord, we thank you that we can have hope that no matter what, 
you are with us, that you will lead us, that you will guide us, that you will protect us, that you will give us rest, that you will be our shepherd, you will be the one who holds us and carries us through. God, help us to have hope, help us to take your hope, and help us to share that hope with the world. Christ has come, Christ is coming, Christ will come again. In his name we pray, amen. One of the things I think is really helpful for us as we talk about hope is to kind of differentiate what we mean by Christian hope. Now, now for most of us in, in this understanding, when we think about hope, we think about it as a, as a deep desire, right? But that's not necessarily the Christian hope that's being talked about here. For example, I have a deep desire, right, to one day take my family and to go back to Liberia, right, to walk the streets of Monrovia and show my kids and my wife and say, this is where I'm from, right, to introduce my family to my bigger families, a lot of them, right, introduce my family to my bigger family. I have a deep desire to do that, right? But that is not the Christian hope, right? And for some of us, it's not even that deep. For some of us, our, our ideas of hope is more like wishful wanting, right? So, for example, I hope that someday before I go to glory, the New York Mets will win a World Series, right? Like, I really, really hope that. Like, 1986 was a long time ago, right? Like, I was a, a three-year-old in Africa, like in Liberia when that happened. Like, it's a long time. Now, I do have to give a warning that if that does happen, a couple of you might have to break into your savings accounts. You know, you might have to cancel the IRAs and bail me out of jail because there will be celebrations, right? I'm just, I'm warning you ahead of time, right? Like, this is what we call warning, right? Like, it's just so you know. Like, I don't want to be in jail, but I probably will do something stupid so you come bail me out, right? It's called community and family, people. But we tend to think of hope, right, as either this deep desire, even if it's something that's good, or, or just this wishful want. But, but is that what is meant by Christian hope? I would argue no, right? Because Christian hope wasn't just about desire or wanting, it was about faith. In fact, Christian hope was faith. The writer of the Hebrews puts it like this. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Christian hope is faith. What is faith but trust in God? So when you think about Christian hope, I think it's, it's fair to hold on to it with the same idea of trust in what God has done, what he's performed in the past, right? What God has already done, that's hope. But it's also trust in what God will do, the promises of God, right? I'll never leave you nor forsake you, right? I will complete the work that I've begun in you. I will come again and bring you unto myself that where I am there you may be also. Trust in what God will do, the not yet, the promises, that is hope. But again, between the not yet and the already comes the now. And we must remember, right, we can only learn from the past, dream of the future, but we live in the now. And the now, though, and what's beautiful about the now is that this is where the, the past and the present converge. Eugene Peterson has this great line that I love. He says this. He says, the present moment, right, the now, the present moment more resembles eternity than any other because in the present, the past and the future converge. That gives me hope because I tend to look at the now and see darkness. I tend to look at the now and see brokenness. I tend to look at the now and see war and strife and hunger. I tend to look at the now and see the world that's not as it should be. But Peterson challenges us and says, actually, the now is important because that's where the past and the future come together. The now is important because in the now, 
you're closer to eternity than we've ever been. And if we believe in a God who redeems and reconciles and is making the world better, that means that in the now is always better than the past. The now is always closer to God. Because if Jesus is coming here and we are not here, that's better than being where? There, right? So it's not about just seeing the darkness and the, the brokenness of the world. It's about realizing that in this moment, we are closer than we've ever been to eternity. In this moment, we're closer to looking like eternity, and that's a challenge for us because we live in a world that's still broken. But the now, though, is also important because it is in the now that we encounter God. Aren't you glad that you don't just encounter God in your past? Aren't you glad that you don't just have to dream of a day where you will encounter God? Aren't you glad that even in the now, God can meet you where you are? Now, what's beautiful about, about hope is that this is something, I was going to say, this is a, the lane that the, the prophets trafficked in, right? The prophets were dealers of hope. And the prophets encountered God, but it preached hope for the now. And I think there's two reasons why they do this. The first one is because the prophets lived in between. The prophets actually lived in the now. There were people who lived between the already and the not yet, they would look around and say, oh, my goodness, we've fallen short. But praise God, he will redeem us. Oh, my goodness, we are broken and we're sinful. But praise God for his healing and his salvation. Oh, my goodness, we've given our lives to Israel and these nations. But praise God for the kingdom of God that looks different than Israel, than Assyria, than Babylon, than America, right? Praise God for his kingdom. They lived in the already and the not yet and placed themselves in between in the now to tell their people, God has been faithful to lead us out of Egypt, God has been faithful to lead us through the wilderness. God has been faithful to bring us to the promised land. God will be faithful to send us the Messiah, but God is faithful today. Take hope. Trust God in what he's done. Trust God in what he promises. Trust God now. But in that same way, they also lived in between God and the people. All you got to do is read a little bit of Exodus, and you realize that Moses stood between God and the people. And sometimes he didn't like it, right? Like sometimes you go up to God and like, these people complain too much. Like, what, what, do you, what are they doing, right? But the prophets would always be in between God and the people, meaning that the people may not see what God is showing them. The people may only see the world that's in front of them, but it was the prophet's job to lift their eyes up, lift up their hearts, lift up their spirits, not only to God, but to see what God sees, to see what God's doing, and to be who God called them to be. The prophets would be in the now between God and the people. The prophets also were in between the kingdoms of God, or the kingdom of God, and the empires of the world, Right? They had King David and King Solomon in the split kingdom. They had Assyria and Babylon. They had Egypt. They had all these nations all around them. They were all rising up, and yet their job was to what? Point people not to the empire they were in, not to the empire they feared, but to the kingdom God was building. So you have these prophets who lived in between. But the one I find especially significant is that the prophets were not just in between the already and the not yet, not just between God and the people, the empires and God's kingdom, but they sometimes were between God and themselves. 
Remember Moses when God called him, right? He says, I'm nobody. <laughs> I'm inadequate. I'm not good enough. Why are you picking me? I can't even speak well. Or, or, or what about Jeremiah? I'm too young. <laughs> you know, like it's just, why baby? I'm way too young. Or, or, or what about Isaiah, right? Isaiah has this beautiful vision from God. And he's just like, I'm not worthy. I'm unholy. Like I have unclean lips, right? The prophets have to live between God and themselves because our natural tendency is to see where we lack. Our natural tendency is to define us by what we can see. Our natural tendency is to say, this is all I am. It's not good enough. That is our natural tendency. But praise God who doesn't leave us there. Praise God who meets us there. And praise God who provides for us even in our weakness, right? Because when, when, when Moses says, I'm nobody, I'm inadequate, I'm not good enough, I can't speak, God says, it's cool, I got Miriam and I got your brother, right, Aaron. Like, I got both of them for you. You'll be all right. When, when, when Jeremiah says, I'm too young, God says, it's okay. I like young people too. You can go out there. I think for some of us, we kind of go on the other side of the spectrum. Where we might say, well, God, I'm too old to do this. And God's like, it's okay. I use old people too. Come on down, right? And then Isaiah, right? I love Isaiah's because it's, this is, he's actually having a vision of heaven. Like he actually sees God in heaven. And there's this part of me that says, like, this is kind of amazing because, like, not only does he see God in heaven, he realizes how unclean he is, how unworthy he is. That's the good part. To know that we need God is good. To know that we can't get to God on our own is good. To know that it is only God who redeems and saves us is good. But if we dwell in our brokenness, our uncleanness, our unworthiness, if we don't see ourselves as the people that God so loved that he sent his son, if we don't see ourselves as the one that God so loved, he sends the Holy Spirit. As the ones that God so loved, he gifted you with the family of faith. The saints of old, the saints to come, the body in your local congregation, the body in the world. God so loves you, he keeps providing all these things for you. Because if you keep going to God with what you lack and who you're not, you are literally speaking against the person that God loves. And so Moses and, and Jeremiah and Isaiah stand between God and themselves, but God provides for them and provides a way out. And when they have encounters with God in the now, they end up in different places. They end up being not just people who have hope in God, but people who gift hope to their people. And that's the great life hack of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is this beautiful story, right, of God wanting to not just be their God, but wanting to be their king. But not only did he want to be their king, he wanted every single one of his people the men, the women, the children, the, 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 the old folks, right? Like the, the rich, the poor. He wanted all of them to be a kingdom of priests. He wanted all of them to be his prophets. And so if we think about how do we bring hope into the world, I think we take a step back and we realize that that hasn't changed when Jesus comes. That in our world, we the Christians we stand between the already and the not yet. To a world that doesn't know, we have stories of how God has been faithful. We know the story of how it will end. And in our present, it is our job to stand between the already and the not yet. It's our job to stand before God and our people. And you hear me say this a lot, right? Only you know the people you know. 
Only you have the relationship with the people you have the relationship with. Only you have the neighbors that you have, right? Only you have the job that you have, the, the friends, the family that you have. Only you can reach them because God has made you to reach them. And if you then are a prophet and a priest in the sense of the Old Testament of this kingdom of priests, then it's your job to stand between God and your people and introduce them to the hope of God. It is us, the Christians, right, who stand between the empire of America and the kingdom of God. It is our job to not only work for the kingdom of God, but to remind one another that we are all called to be working and living for God's kingdom, not America's empire. And it's us that God meets where we are, right? When we have our doubts, when we have our fears, when we feel inadequate, when we feel like, why would God ever use me? I'm too young. I'm too old. I can't speak. I don't have any gifts. There's nothing for me to give. God meets us there and says, no, 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 no. I will equip you. I will strengthen you. I will empower you. I will send help, the spirit, the church, and I will send you out. And when we have this encounter with God, when we have this hope of what God's called us to be, we can be people who give hopes. Because remember how Moses ends, right? Moses' last words were not his faith, were not his doubt, was not his, um, his uh, I don't know how this is going to work out. I'm sick of these people. Moses' last words were what? A blessing to the tribes of Israel. A blessing to God's people. And that blessing at the end of I think Exodus, that blessing really is just saying, I want y'all to trust that God is powerful and in control and holding you together. I want y'all to trust that God promises his presence to be with you. I want y'all to trust that God will protect you. That's the message of hope he gives. And what about Jeremiah? Remember his blessing of hope. Now, I, I love when I hear, I don't really love it. This is sarcastic, right? I get frustrated. Let's be honest. I get frustrated when Christians in America talk to me about how they feel under attack. Right? They feel under attack. And I love to remind them that there's Christians in the world right now who if they say the name of Jesus, they will be killed. I love to remind them that you might be losing a little bit of privilege. You might be losing values or maybe things you shouldn't have had in the first place at best. But there's Christians in the world who can't even gather to meet together to worship God like we're gathering to meet and worship God together. We think we're under attack. We're not under attack. We are arguably the most privileged Christians, not just in the world, but in the history of time. Think about that for a second, right? But yet, it is the actual people of God who are under attack <laughs> that God provides hope for the most. Because remember who Jeremiah is writing to? He's writing to a people who've sinned and fell short. He's writing to a people who've sinned for generations upon generations. They've lost the promised land. They've lost, the, the, their, their relationship with God seems to be lost. They've not only lost their land, they've been taken over by not just one empire, by two empires. And these are people who've been slaughtered and killed, right? Not just for their faith, but for everything they were, everything they believed. And not only are they slaughtered and killed, the ones who survived were the so-called best and brightest. They've been taken from their land and thrust into Babylon. These were people actually under attack. A little different than us, right? Like a little bit different than us, right? Yet to those people... Jeremiah, after his encounter with God, how does he provide hope for them? He says, listen, I know things are hard. I know you're in exile. I know the world's not as it should be. But I also know that God's with you. 
I also know that God's powerful. I also know that God is going to work for your good. So right in that exile, in the midst of your suffering, you know what I want you to do? I want you to shine. I want you to settle down. I want you to to marry and and have kids. I want your kids to have kids. I want you to plant gardens. I want you to what? Work for the peace of your city. Work for the shalom of your city. Shine there because if that city prospers, think about that for a second. If the people who killed you, oppressed you, exiled you, took everything from you, tried to steal your identity from you, Jeremiah says, if they prosper, you will prosper. God seems to define their suffering not by what's done to them, but by the hope he can give them to not only conquer, but to thrive in that suffering, thrive despite that suffering. And that is the message he gives. Isaiah, who we read earlier, right, in the beginning of the service, the beginning of that passage says, listen, I know we seem to have lost everything. But I want you to have hope because there's a day coming where there'll be no more gloom. There'll be no more darkness. The light is coming, and it's coming in the form of a baby. And that's just three of the prophets, Moses, Jeremiah, Isaiah. This morning I've chosen Micah. And if you remember in the summer, we went through Micah, and we talked about how the the, the center of Micah, four or five, right, The, the, the most important message of Micah is hope. Hope that God will restore his peoples. And we said that this was physically true because in the scrolls, right, now in our, our culture, the closest I have is that when you have a book, not you guys, you, got, you all, are, y'all are scholars, you don't do this, right? But some people I've heard do this, right? They look at the book, they flip it over, they read the back cover, and they know everything about the book, right? They'll teach you about the book just based on the back cover, right? Like, like you don't do that, but some people do that, right? It was kind of true in Micah's day, too. Because they would have these scrolls where they would write what we call now the books of the Bible. And so they would drop off these scrolls. And, and, and so the, the, the prophets were smart enough to know that some people just read the back cover. Or in the sense of the scroll, they'll open the scroll, read a sentence or two, and be like, yeah, I got it all. Right? So they're like, if you're only going to give me two sentences, I'm going to put the most important message where? In the center. Because that's where the scroll opens, right? And what's beautiful about this is that the scrolls, again, were written in, in all caps, right? So for the millennials and younger, that means they were screaming at you, right? But it was also written without punctuation. They didn't even have vowels. So you didn't even know what the word really was. You just had to figure it out, right? But the point is that we put it in the center of the scroll, the most important message. And Micah's most important message is found in chapters 4 and chapter 5. And that message is that God will gift you hope because God will send a Savior. And God will redeem it all, save the world, and make peace for all of us. And and so as you go through, and remember this summer, as we went through the book of Micah, he builds up to this, right? He starts off by saying, listen, I'm going to warn you that we've been sinning and falling short. That all of us have fallen short. And, And we think Micah preached this anywhere from 10 years to maybe 20 plus years, right? So imagine two decades of preaching the same sermon. Two decades of trying to get these people to see we have to turn around. We're not living right. We have to turn around. But yet they don't listen. And there's consequences, right? They, they fall to the empires. And, and, and now they're even suffering raids at the time of his writing. And, and so when that doesn't work for 20 years, he comes back and he says, listen, not only have we sinned, but we are corrupt people. We haven't been faithful to God, but we haven't been faithful to one another. We've built our country on the backs of the slaves. 
We built our country on the backs of the poor. We keep taking advantage of each other. We keep stepping on one another to rise up, and all we're doing is falling further and further away from God. He indicts the people, yet reminds them that even though we've not been faithful, praise God, because God is faithful. And they still don't hear that message. So he comes back again, and he says, listen, I get it. Our leaders are corrupt. Our politicians are corrupt. I know we can't relate to this. Our politicians are corrupt. Our our priests are corrupt. They violate God's law. But here's the thing. Forget the leaders and politicians for a second. Think about you. Are you trusting God? Are you placing your hope and trust in God? Because God is faithful and good. And, of course, when we get to the center, we get to Micah 4 and 5. Again, he's not writing at a peacetime. He's writing in a time of war where the people have fallen to the Assyrians, right? The the generation, they've fallen to the Babylonians and the Assyrians, right? But he's writing at a time where they're not even sure where their next meal is going to come from. Where if they lived in outskirt towns like Bethlehem, that small little town, right? It's like living in Oberlin, right? Like we know where it kind of is, but we don't really know where it is, right? Like it's like even Oberlin, even Bethlehem was a threat because guess what? The small towns were easier to conquer, And the empires wouldn't necessarily send the whole army. They would send like a little group of five to ten to ransack the whole town. This is what he's writing to. He's writing to a people who at the point of attack, the threat of war is imminent, they're at the face of destruction. Yet even in the midst of this, Micah says we can have hope in God. And this is a challenge. It's a challenge to me because it's very easy for me to throw my hands up. It's very easy for me to be like, you know what, it's not as it should be and I'm tired, right? It's very easy for me to be like, God, why, what, what are you doing? Do something, right? But yet in the midst of brink of destruction, Micah points them back to God. And his message is like, I want you to have hope. And again, it's not wishful thinking, it's not desire, it's trust in God. I want you to have trust in God because a better world is coming. And so the challenge for us, right, is that things are not as they should be. Yes, we are under attack. He says, yes, we're suffering. And I love that you can tell he's a man, right, because he thinks this is a really good example, right? He's like, you know what our suffering is like? It's like a woman in labor. And anytime I preach this, every woman is just like, how do you know? We don't know, right? Like, well, it's called, it's called metaphor. We're just, you know, we're just trying our best, right? But he says, no, our suffering is like a woman in labor. And though he may not know the depths of that suffering, the depths of that pain, his point isn't about the labor or the suffering. His point is the fruit and the child. Right? Like his point isn't just like, hey, we're suffering. And and his point is that in your suffering, God sees and God is working for fruit. I think that's a beautiful reminder to us because we need to have hope that we serve a God who sees. That whether we're Hagar and being kicked out of our home and sent to the desert, we serve a God who sees. Whether we're David and no one else believes and we got to go take out this 10-foot Goliath, we serve a God who sees. Whether we're we're Esther, right, and and every one of our people are under extinct and might be wiped out and I might be killed just for going in front of the king, we serve a God who sees. And that same God who sees, sees our pain, sees our labor, and promises us fruit. And what is the fruit that God is working on that Micah wanted him to know? That the Messiah will soon come. And I love the Messiah is born in Bethlehem. I make fun of Oberlin mostly because I don't know where Oberlin is. 
right? Like, I just feel like when we think about Bethlehem, it's so familiar to us. We're just like, Bethlehem. Like, you all know where Bethlehem is, right? And, and then most Israel, I would argue, maybe heard of Bethlehem. But if you were like, but where exactly is Bethlehem? They're like, well, it's over there somewhere. And that's the same thing I'll tell you about Oberlin. It's over there somewhere, you know? But I love that God picks not big old Jerusalem, right? Not the city that everyone wants to live in and be a part of. He picks a little town in the middle of nowhere with a significant name, right? Bethlehem Ephrata, the house of bread. And I love that the bread of life, Jesus Christ, comes from the house of bread. Bethlehem, right? Like the house of bread. But in choosing Bethlehem, the little, it kind of reminds me of the parable of the mustard seed that Jesus tells, right? Like the kingdom of God sometimes starts out small, but it grows into this big tree. It starts out with Jesus preaching to thousands, you know, maybe hundreds chose to believe. 72 he sent out. 12 he discipled. 11 passed the test. Judas, we're still working on, right? 12 passed the test, right? Maybe three or four was his inner circle. One was his best friend. That's how small the kingdom starts. And now we're a billion strong. And we've had saints from ages and more to come until Jesus comes again. The kingdom starts off in little old Bethlehem and it grows. But what I love about the Messiah coming is that we're reminded that God's kingdom will not only confront evil, right? We can have hope that, yes, the world's not as it should be. God will make it right. But that we, God's people, ought to bring hope to the nations. Why? By blessing them with the hope that we have. And so that's the work. So if we ask ourselves, how does encountering Jesus, how does encountering Emmanuel bring hope to our world? I think there's four ways that I, I try to hold on to hope, and I want to share with you. The first one is never lose sight that this world that you see isn't all there is. And for me, I have to actively zoom out, right? Because when I'm dialed in, <laughs> I see brokenness. I see hunger. I see strife. I see war. I see pain. I see suffering. When I'm zoomed in, I see the brokenness. And I have to be reminded to zoom out. And to see that God is bigger than what I can see. To see that God not only sees our suffering, but God's working in the midst of our suffering. And to see that God who promises freedom, God who promises hope, is actually giving hope now. And zooming out sometimes helps me to stop focusing on what I can see and start seeing how God is working in you and through you and in our world. So not zooming in, but zooming out. And then when I zoom out then, I'm able to not only pray and breathe, I'm able to remember. It do well for us as Christians to remember. Never forget all that God has done for you. That's how we have hope, holding on to the already, the performed, what God has already done. By remembering that God has seen you through, that might be enough to remember for God to see you through today. Amen? By remembering how God's been faithful in the past, you can trust him today because you have evidence of his faith that's taken you through the past. And then it comes to just having hope. I have hope in what God has promised because of what God has done. And you can too. And that is the simple message of Christmas. It's not just celebrating the baby, right? It's not just celebrating Christ's coming one time. It's celebrating that Christ came as a baby, but in my 39 years of life, Christ has been coming every single day too. It's celebrating not just that Christ will come again, but that Christ is coming in your life too. 
It's celebrating that even though we suffer like a woman in labor, the fruit is Christ into the world. So the question becomes, how does this hope that God gives me, how am I translating that into the world? Because hope is Christ will come. And just like Christ has come and Christ is coming, our work, our job is to be hope dealers, if you will, right? We got to be giving out the hope of Christ today. And that's the work. That's the Christmas story this week anyway, right? How are we holding on to the hope that God gives us? But if we're truly going to be a kingdom of priests, if we're going to be the prophets God calls us to be, are we willing to do that work of trusting God because of what he's done? Of trusting God because of what he promises? Are we willing to be like, listen, I am in between what God has done and what God will do? I'm between God and the people God's placed in my life. I'm between God and this behemoth we call America, but I want to point to the kingdom. I'm in between God and myself when I doubt and don't have faith. I'm going to hold on to hope, not because it's a desire, not because it's wishful thinking, but because it's assurance and confidence and evidence based on what? Who God is, what God has done. And if you simply ascribe to telling the story of what God's done in your life, you will not only give hope to your world, you might just give hope to yourself too. Amen? Let's stand and sing. We'd like to call up the worship team and Pastor Hannah. We're going to end with a, a song that I think is familiar, especially this time of year. We sing, it's called Hope for Everyone. And as we sing, I'd like to invite any of the pastors in the room up front. We'd love to pray for you. Maybe you want to respond to something in the service. Or, or maybe you have someone on your heart who needs a little bit of hope this morning. We'd love to pray for them too. Or maybe it's you that needs a little bit of that hope this morning. We'd love to pray for you. But as we sing this song, may we be reminded that hope is just simply trusting that God has done what God has done. And trusting that God will do what God says what God will do. And trusting that in the now, we can have encounters with God because God wants to meet us now. Let's stand and sing.
um, one of the, the things that gives me hope are my children, um, and, and for many reasons. Uh, but one of my wishful, watchful dreams was my kids to not like bad music, right? Like, it's not hope that we're talking about this morning, but like, that was actually my deep desire, because there's nothing worse than kids who like bad music, and as your parents, you have to fake that you like it. Like, ugh, you know? It's almost as bad as Christmas sweaters, but that's another decision, right? But one of the things that's been fun for me is that my kids like good music. You like my music, so obviously it's good music, right? But one of the things that brings me hope is, is when my kids sing, right? And one of the things that, I don't know we're allowed to do it in the house because I'm singing too and no one likes that. Well, my wife, you know, but like we like it, the three of us, right? But in my car where I have dominion, you know, we like to sing. And then one of our favorite songs is uh, from a, a young woman by the name of Emily Brimlow. We are actually introduced to it through um, a group called The Common Hymnal. And, and they kind of have like a collection of, of songwriters. And I remember when I was reading about this, I heard the song. I was like, oh, this is good, right? It's a song called Hope. Um, it, it's both playful and poignant. It's both serious but also light. And it's just beautiful. There's many aspects of it. It's beautiful. And, and we like it. There's different parts in it. So we sing it all time. But one of the things that struck me as she, she wrote about this song, she says, what's funny about this song is that as a songwriter, it, it's really hard to write songs. But this one came easy. I just started thinking about all the people that we leave behind and all the people that need hope and are trying to find hope, and, and God gifted me this song. And this second verse is, is, is the, 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 one of our favorite parts of the song, and I wanted to leave that as a benediction because this really is, is a prayer, and I think it's a prayer that all of us can have this morning. Uh, and so in, in, I think it's verse 2 of this song, Hope, Emily writes and sings, So I lift my hands to the God that guides me, to the one that finds me, even in my darkest days he walks beside me. To the one that finds me, even in my darkest days, he walks beside me, singing songs of freedom. Oh, he's singing songs of life. And they're leading me out of the darkness, and they're bringing me into the light. He's never said it would be easy. No, he never said it would be safe. He never said the path we're walking on, knew, oh, we wouldn't have hurdles to face. But the Lord did promise me freedom, and the Lord did promise me strength. He said we'd soar on wings of eagles and not grow weary or faint. That's the hope we have. Not that it's going to be easy. Not that it's going to be all light, but that God will give us strength, that God will give us hope, and that God will see us through. And that is the hope we have, and I hope that's the hope we carry to our world. Let's pray. Our Father, God, we thank you so much that you are indeed our God of hope. And as our God of hope, Lord, we trust you, not only as the all-powerful, almighty one, not only the one who everything falls under your feet, but Lord, you're the one who not only holds the world together, but you're the one who holds us together. You hold us together as the body of your son, Jesus Christ. You hold us together even individually as we struggle with light and darkness, with faith and doubt, with, with just the hardness of the world that we live in. But Lord, you have the power to hold us together, so we take hope in that. Lord, we also thank you for the power of your presence, the promise of your presence, Lord, that the Holy Spirit now lives inside of all of us who believes, that the Spirit lives inside your church, globally, locally, here in Harrisburg, across the world. It's lived throughout the history of the faithful witness of your people, and it will live on until you come again, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God that gives us hope. And we pray now that you help us to see what you are doing, where you are moving, what you're calling us to do, and how you're inviting us to join in. So Lord, we thank you for your power. We thank you for your presence. But lastly, we thank you for your protection. That in this world, you are indeed our shepherd, the one who leads and guides us, the one who not only protects us but gives us rest, the one who leads us into every valley, every shadow, every darkness, the one who promises to be light to lead us home. So, Lord, in all these things, 
We remember what you've done for us. But Lord, we thank you that you're not just the God of the past. You're not just the God who will come and who will be. You're the God of the now. So we pray, Lord, that in this now, help us to have encounters with you. Encounters that remind us of your faithfulness in the past. Encounters that remind us of your promises for the now and the future. Encounters that build up our hope that is so flows inside of us and flows into our world. God, you have called us to be your priests to our people. You have called us to be your priests to this empire that we live in. You've called us to be your priests not only before you, but even before our faith and doubts, our brokenness, our darkness, Lord. So we pray now that we humbly come before you asking for hope, hope in you, hope in what you've done, hope in what you will do. And Lord, help us to take all of that and give it to our world too. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you all. Have a good week.